Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Four, three, two, one. I told you before to be careful where you put your legs. I was only trying to be helpful. I can help myself. What are you waiting for? Come on. Come on. What are you waiting for? Come on! Come on! For seven decades, Michael Caine has been among the world's most renowned and recognisable actors. It was just what I needed, a one-inch god with a two-inch penis. Star of classics like Zulu, The Man Who Will Be King and The Cider House Rules. It's a miracle no one was killed. But also films that brought his career to the brink of complete implosion. I made a mistake. Somehow, he has always found a way back. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. In this epic podcast series, we will watch and review every Michael Caine movie, from the greatest hits... You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! ...to the incredible misses. You failed to maintain your weapon, son. And take a deep dive into the life and work of one of the world's most recognisable film stars. His name is Michael Caine, and no one will forget his name. Behave yourself. To understand... How he has made the mark of Cain. Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. For God's sake, come in! Hello and welcome to The Mark of Cain, the journey through the mighty filmography of Michael Cain, where we will visit every movie up the peaks, down the valleys, and charting maybe the most wildly diverse, and I mean wildly diverse, movie career of any actor arrived right now. Joining me on this trek, as always, is Stephen Black, Chief Monkey Typist at the Mallow News. Congrats on the promotion. Thanks very much. That's only because the other monkey died of Ebola. I just had to put a dampener on the whole thing from the start. I was trying to say something nice, and you bring Ebola into it. Well, he was old as well, so, you know. Yeah, let's just say say he was old. Anyway, you can find Stephen at Mallow News, and he's it's taking. Like, it's like the it was it was like the Prince Philip of uh, the Mallow News staffers. You're just hanging around, <laughs> waiting for your chance. You just kind of going, he can't possibly be alive. But no, there he is, breathing in and out, hanging in there by his little monkey fingernails. Well, to so be fair, yeah, to be fair, some of the tweets recently have have kind of read a little bit like possibly a monkey that needed poking with a stick uh, might have written them. So you know, at least listen, maybe your promotion listen. would bring things up a level now. I think that's that's unlikely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Stephen has left his uh, very busy tweeting schedule to watch our latest movie. Uh, it's more Harry Palmer, and this time he's at the wall. This is Funeral in Berlin. He's running for his life. Hold it, Harry Palmer. Remember him in the Impress file. Now Harry's in Berlin with the wall between him and his next perilous assignment. Harry's arranging a funeral in Berlin. He just hopes it won't be his. Funeral in Berlin uh, is the second effort by Kane as Harry Palmer. Uh, the year is 1966. Um, and he's in the middle, isn't he, of this, like, mad run of films. Like, he's done, like, this is, his, this is the fourth film in 1966 that Kane brings out, isn't it? 
Oh, he's blasting them out. He's uh, he's he's grabbing opportunity by both hands, and he's he's basically like Paul Mescal, the Paul Mescal of his days. Just like right, walk. How can I milk th- this teat before it runs dry? Before I end up before I end up co-hosting Ireland's fittest family, or uh, being one of the guests that Tommy Tiernan gazes at for about ten minutes trying to figure out who the fuck that is. Oh you know? dear. Well, no. As always, as we say always, if you haven't seen Funeral in Berlin in this case. Go watch it online. You'll find it no problem. It's out there. Um, and if you haven't watched it, well, you know, you can listen on and f- uh, see see what you think. Um, I'd say at the very top anyway, I thought it was, you know, I was actually pleasantly surprised how good it was. Um, but uh, look, we can get into all that in more detail. You liked it as well, did you? I did overall, like it very much. Yeah. Overall, no, I thought it was a good film, and especially coming off the back of Alfie, which, you know... Uh, Ardent listeners would have listened to before this. Uh, it was nice to get away from uh, the casual misogyny and abortion uh, <laughs> plot. Yeah, into something, into something a little bit more, you know, um, mainstream. Yeah, a bit more mainstream misogyny. Yeah, mainstream um, misogyny. That's exactly it. And I mean, we can go into this in a bit more detail about how different Harry Palmer is in this one. I think, anyway, compared to Ipcris in that regard. Um, like Harry Palmer in the first, in the Ipcris file, of course, if people had listened to it, if the people listened to us talking about that one, like it was kind of an attempt at a 60s metrosexual male to some degree. There's there none of that in this. But uh, we'll come to that in a second. To go, to go through the very basics, 1966, uh, it's come out at Christmas time uh, in the States. It comes out in the early spring, the following year in the UK. Um, it's interesting, the New York Times uh, review at the time included the fact that this was like Kane's fourth film. You could go and see Michael Kane in four different films in New York that Christmas if you wanted. Alfie, of course, Ipcris File, which was brought out on the back of the popularity of Alfie, Gambit, which we discussed last time round, and this flick, Funeral in Berlin. It's directed by Guy Hamilton, Stephen, who, of course, is a, you know, a Bond pioneer, wasn't he? Director of Goldfinger, and we'll go on to direct the greatest Bond film of all time, Live and Let Die. <gasps> Be still, be still, my beating pulse. Yeah, a, a terrible director, to be fair. But a, you know, well, <laughs> terrible, terrible is a bit harsh. But he's he's really not working. Like he's, Jeez, uh, he did Doctor it, No. He did Goldfinger. Yes, yeah, the, all right. Those are films that were successful. There is nothing dynamic. There is no. There's you, know, you remember that classic shot from Goldfinger or that classic shot from Doctor No? He just he was like, uh, he was, uh, he was the. Do you remember that classic insert. shot from Doctor No? Ursula Andress coming out of the coming out of the water. I mean, quite apart from Ursula Andress, that's a classic shot. You can't say that's not a classic shot. Goldfinger. It is, it is but it's it, it's in the context of the film. It's not in the context of the skill of the director, the director of photography. It's not. It's just this is you know what for. Here comes your one in a bikini coming out of the water. Uh, maybe maybe Sean Connery is going to do a sex on her. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe we can leave that for our for our marathon, uh, James Bond. You know, this would be like kind of doing you know like you know one marathon every single day. You know, when we run out of these eighty odd films of Michael Caine, we can move on to Bond, and you can you can beat down on uh, Guy Hamilton as much as you like. I didn't think, I didn't think they were that bad. I think they're pretty pioneering pieces of work but yeah I mean I have nothing against nothing against Guy I'm sure he's a lovely man and if I ran into him <laughs> at, a, uh, at a party I'm sure we'd have plenty cocktail to discuss party, cocktail party it's a lovely guy lovely anecdotes about his time in uh, military intelligence during the second world war uh, maybe maybe I'd say 
some body uh, stories about uh, Roger Moore from the, the set of Live and Let Die and Moonraker. Let's not forget mm -hmm. that. He directed Moonraker <laughs> okay. as well. Okay. 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 <laughs> I get the message. I think you might be onto something there. All right. To be fair, though, when it comes to funeral in Berlin, of course, Harry Palmer, it's all espionage. Guy Hamilton was an intelligence agent. He brought he, he actually brought a lot to it beyond being a director. He, he really did, actually in practice. Yeah, apparently so. Michael, Michael Caine said that, he, that, you know, they improvised various bits and pieces uh, based on Guy's experience. Um, I'm assuming most of those were in and around the, uh, the, the the transvestite bar that they go to about halfway through the film. <laughs> you reckon uh, You reckon that's where his expertise came came rightly to the fore? Well, it's, I presume it was kind of, you know, that one of the key uh, key tools in any spy's uh, utility belt is the ability to, to dress convincingly as a woman, as the British <laughs> love doing, both in comedies and in real life, spying. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, so it's, it's, Manny's the, the uh, investigative journey he made to, to a, a bar to get a, do his due diligence. <laughs> well, he certainly brought he brought a lot to it in that regard. Um, as I was saying, the New York Times, when they were talking about Kane at Christmas time, they were saying he's like a cocktail froster and the electric toothbrush, gift wrap disorderly, which is kind of mad in the space of a year. What's, like, what's a cocktail froster? I have no, I have no idea. I presume it's something that Don Draper would have had. I have no. Do, would it be? Would it put kind of like you know a little frosty rim on top of a cocktail glass? So. I don't know. I, I re I'm not a, really a cocktail person, I'll be honest. I may have had a cocktail at one point in my life, but I don't think I realized I was having one. No, usually at the t by the time you're drinking cocktails, you definitely weren't in, uh, in a fit state to remember what it is no, that you were doing. No, at that point, I'm, I'm shouting my credit card number around the bar and I'm waking up, or at least well, certainly the following month, my bill is coming back and I'm realizing that at some point in the previous month, I was shouting my credit card number around the bar. Yeah. So, we get into this. Um, okay, one of the things we sometimes do on this is we go through the plot of a movie. Now, we will give that a go. And again, I go back to our friends at the New York Times. When this movie came out, it wasn't exactly what you'd call well-received, right? It was. Now, we both think it's a fucking good, bloody good movie. But at the time, it, maybe people were kind of, I don't know, caned out of it. Or maybe he was just Alfie. I don't know. But they called it Plotsy, which I thought was a bit of a glib remark for this movie. But to be fair, when it comes to trying to explain it for a podcast, it's freaking plotsy, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, pain it's, it's a pain in the hoop. It's unreal. It's, it's very complicated. But we'll give it a rattle, right? Um, so essentially, what we're talking about here is Harry Palmer. It's the second, as I say, it's the second one of Harry Palmer coming back. Um, but he's a very, to me, he's a very different Harry Palmer. And you see this from the very beginning. Like, I mean, in the previous Ipcris file, um, you have Harry cooking. You have Harry in a kitchen with designer pots and teapots and designer everything. He's got a lovely coffee pot, as we talked about before. It's all very this, that, and the other. He's a gourmand. Um, in this, in this uh, film, the first time you see Harry Palmer, you see hands chopping food in the same way you did in the first one you assume it's harry but of course it pulls back it's not it's a lady friend and it's the morning after this is a very i think anyway it's a very different sort of harry palmer 
Well, I guess so, but I suppose to just to put it in context, in the first movie, uh, all of his uh, kind of cookery chicanery is part of his. Uh, it, it, it's his foreplay. It's his. It's you know. It's, it's how he gets his foot in the 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 sex door. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whereas this is post-coital, so this letting her cook is his equivalent <laughs> of, or turning, or turning around and letting her lie in the wet patch, essentially, like, you know? He has no interest in making this woman breakfast. No, there is no, no benefit to making breakfast. No benefit no. to getting out the fancy spoons for this one, no. 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 Sorry, sort yourself out if I've got to go to work, essentially, is the, is the, is the vibe here. And that actually brings up, before we even bother getting into the plot, because this is a... This was a recurring theme, and it's an, one that interests me, and I want you to talk to me about this, because this was your theory, in fairness. Early doors, even with Zulu, right? Um, and people who've listened to the previous episodes will be aware of this. We talked about it about, through Ipcris as well. But this is the degayification of Michael Caine at this point in his career. Can you just explain very briefly what we mean by that? Like, how was is, how is Michael Caine seen back then? And why did the degayification process have to occur in some of these movies in the same way that it occurs in Funeral Berlin as well? Well, I suppose it's important to remember that these were uh, different times. Uh, so it was very important for male stars to be very masculine uh, and not any way um, give a hint of vulnerability or uh, show any emotion. So I, the, the initial feedback that, I think that Michael Caine got in his career was that he... You know, viewers thought that he was gay, essentially because he was a feet looking and his mannerisms and his hand gestures were um, basically homosexual because homosexuals are, of course, infamous for their hand gestures. All straight men walk with their hands tied to their side, not daring to lift even the, 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 their baby finger in case all of a sudden they are they're basically seconds later in a hedge. Exactly. Blaming away. Exactly. Because it's 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 a gate it's a, move, moving your fingers a gateway drug essentially to homosexuality, and preferably so, and preferably any straight man also would walk with fists clenched in case a potentially homosexual man came near you so in, that you in, could punch him immediately, punch him, but also in case an engorged penis made its way through your hand and you had to you had to basically. <laughs> In a forward and back motion, try to extricate your clenched fist from <laughs> sitting over his penis. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a, 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 a tragedy it was waiting a lot to happen. It was a lot tougher time, uh, to be, you oh, know, uh, for for straight men especially, because obviously it was it was easy for for homosexuals back then. Anyway. So essentially, he they they attempted to rehabilitate his uh, his his heterosexuality in, in films by putting him in scenarios that would leave the viewer in no doubt that here was a man who likes his uh, coffee black, his toast burnt, and his uh, women uh, without penises. Yeah, so like in in, in the in the Chris file. Again, if you go back to the podcast, there are there are numerous very blatant efforts to leave the viewer no doubt that he's a straight man. It's carried over into this a little bit um, at the start, just leaving you no doubt. Obviously, here he is. Nothing's happened between film one and film two to make him doubt that he's that that he likes ladies. Uh, so here we Nothing are. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like he's throwing out the odd misogynist line, like t- like telling uh, his his uh, telling his uh, par- his his lover. Uh, that uh, she, you know, she'd be better off getting back into the bedroom and out of the kitchen. Will you cooperate? Information? Yes. I'll tell them that you talk well and lie badly. Harry Palmer's back and in dead trouble again. Horn rims, cockney wit, iron fist. Where's Bunker? 
He's going over the wall. He's a peaceful kind of guy, really. He just likes a little peace and quiet. Tell Ross uh, I'll be late. You're useless in the kitchen. Why don't you go back to bed? Going back to his relationship with Sam Steele, however, it's a little bit different because he essentially cops on that, hang on, a woman this good-looking is not... It, it just doesn't happen for Harry Palmer. I have to go through... This, I, this is well-established. I have to work with them for a short period of time so they get to know my... Uh, you know, like, know what a, a charming man I am. I have to take them to the flat. I have to mm -hmm. cook them a, a five-course dinner. Mm -hmm. Then left too bloated uh, to put up any kind of defense to my to, to my uh, amorous moves. Then and only then will I be able to uh, make love to them. Yes. Uh, whereas in this instance, it's basically, there is, it's basically, hell yeah, uh, back to my place, get your yeah. pants off I'll, the coat. And I'll make you dinner, in fact. Which is yes. what happens when she goes back. She makes dinner, which just really raises his suspicions about her actual intent. And of course, Sam Steele turns out to be a Mossad agent in this complex and tangled web that begins to knot itself up about a third of the way through the movie. But to go back to the beginning, anyway, just as you say, Stephen, you're quite right. We've delayed this plotsy bit too long. We need to we need to try now. Um, basically, Harry is sent to Berlin. And of course, it's West and East Berlin, it's 1966, to arrange the defection of Colonel Stock, who's a Soviet intelligence guy. He's basically the boss of the wall on the eastern side. So Kane, Stroke Palmer, is, is automatic. He's just sceptical. He meets him. He likes him, but he's sceptical. He meets up with Johnny Vulcan, who's his former criminal associate of Palmer, uh, who is now running the Berlin Station for British Intelligence. There you go. We'll find out why later on. Meets, as I say, he meets Stock. He's a bit suspicious of him. And then, as Stephen was just talking about, he meets Sam Steele. Um, now, at this point, Harry has introduced himself as a lingerie salesman. She introduces herself as a lingerie model, effectively pulls her jacket open in the back of a cab on the way back to her place to, sh to show him uh, her latest wares, as it were, and yeah. they end up spending the night, etc. He was a lingerie salesman. She was a lingerie model. Can I make it any more obvious? Yes, yes. I mean, it's. I mean, even for even for Kane, and to be fair, I think this is an example of Kane. Now, I mean, you know, he down through his career, he has always made reference to the fact that you know he is able to inhabit characters. In this case, at this point in the mid sixties, he's as we discussed in the previous podcast about Gambit, he's having a whale of a time. I mean, no door is is left closed to him, as it were. Um, but in this case, he's had, he had to inhabit the character of a man who is doubtful about uh, a woman who has literally and physically thrown herself at him. Impressive. Very impressive. And I mean, again, you, you wouldn't see Bond doing it. You wouldn't see Bond kind of going, oh, this is quite unusual for me to, you know, sleep with three women within a 24-hour period. Maybe I should go take clinic. You know, this is a man who knows. <laughs> this is a man who knows. Hang on. These things don't happen to me. Clearly something is up. Soon as, uh, soon as, uh, you know, in fairness to me, he doesn't at any stage say, no, sorry, something's amiss here. Clearly from a professional perspective, we can't get involved like this. Uh, I'll just do a quick background check on you. And if you turn out to be clean, uh, not like that, I'll come back and maybe we can, you know, pick things up from where they left off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But no, we just drive on. But he's sceptical. So we we move along. Uh, there's a lot of this. There's a lot of the skepticism, but he never actually followed. You know, so I, I'm very sceptical. 
So the deal is done to get Stock over. But the one thing that Stock wants to happen is he wants this guy, Otto Kreutzmann, to bring him across. Now, Otto Kreutzmann, as we found out earlier in the film, is this guy who's arranging all these fantastic defections. So He's basically, uh, he's basically a neo-Nazi uh, with a couple of Aryan henchmen who is, uh, what assumes is part of the rat, the rat line that would have been used to get Nazis out of Germany across across the border and into uh, southern uh, southern America, yeah. so they set up this network there just as as a, as a money earner mm-hmm. uh, to help people defect from East Berlin to West Berlin, uh, and he's making our Russian general, the Russian or stock, look bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the premise for getting uh, him involved uh, because he wants the man who's made him look bad to uh, be involved and help him helping him defect or escape from East Berlin. Exactly, and of course, we shouldn't we should pause it. Kreutzmann, of course is, as you say, a neo-Nazi-looking guy, but he's also Slugworth from Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. So, you know, I don't know, is there any connection it, there? Well, I suppose when you think about it, I mean, given the time that uh, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, is it Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory? Yeah, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Charlie and Chocolate Factory is the book, isn't it? Yeah. So given that this was set, this, you know, set around the same time, uh, Slugworth worked for Wonka, for Wonka. Um, had a lot of slave labor. Charlie Bucket was a blonde, blue, blue-eyed youth. I mean, it was, it's clear that this was just an Aryan recruitment campaign uh, for a fourth chocolatey Reich. <laughs> you make it. I think. I think we're 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 about two steps away from connecting now on to the boys from Brazil. I think it is. It is kind of join the dots bit, are we? I think. I think so. Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Gregory Peck calling in. So it's just, that deleted scene where Gregory Peck uh, uh, tr- tries to defend himself against those Dobermans with a Wonka bar. <laughs> Here, fetch! No, it didn't quite work. Didn't quite work. Um, so, yeah, so he goes back to London, tells Ross he's a bit skeptical about the whole thing. Ross says, fire ahead. And at this point, he meets this guy, Hallam, who gives him documents to take back to Berlin to uh, affect what is going to be, by the way, a fake funeral. That's how they're bringing stock across. They're going to stick him in a coffin. And bring him over, but of course they need documents. So he gives them documents. But this guy Hallam again, yeah. So Hallam was is, is set up as this kind of counterpoint to Harry Palmer, terms of letting the audience know this is what a homosexual man looks like. Wears a kimono, <laughs> is very high in the hello ducky scale of seven or eight. Very. The kind of very, very, very camp, um, slightly predatory um, forger who yes. um, appears initially in the film. You don't think about him. Then when he reappears, you kind of think, oh, this is a more important character, and then. Comes very clear that he's up to no good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Relentless offers of tea, as I remember in the flash. So, so he gives them the documents, and they're in the name of a guy called Paul Louis Brew. Oh, we're bringing him over by funeral. Uh, he goes back to Berlin. He meets Samantha, who he's apparently falling in love with. Well, as you do, I suppose this is the 50s and 60s, and most people of my, our generation will know your, your parents met, they fell in love, and then they had sex, and then they had you, and that was it for the rest of their lives. So in the that same way, the, film, the, the movies re- reflected this. Basically, mm-hmm. you met somebody, uh, if they would have sex with you, that mean, meant that you were in love, and you would have a family. Exactly. And this is the road that Harry, bizarrely, uh, is taking. So... But also, in the middle of all of this, of course, she admits that she's Mossad. She's in Berlin to actually find Broom, who's a war criminal. He's a, he was a Nazi concentration camp guard who nicked over two million quid and put it in the Swiss bank. So that's why they're there. So suddenly Harry goes, hmm, Paul Louis Broom, that, that name rings a bell with me. Um, and of course, Swiss, Swiss bank, what, what, what Switzerland's also famous for? 
Uh, Toblerone. Chocolate, exactly. Bring us all the way back to Willy Wonka. Wonka, Wonka, you're right. I think you're onto something here. S- signs are everywhere if you look for them. They are, they are. Hmm. Let's. I keep an eye on that. I think you're. I think you're trying to um, single-handedly don't, don't ruin, ruin the movie for me. Eh? <laughs> don't worry, we'll be putting we'll be putting a link to my Willy Wonka Aryan uh, conspiracy theory <laughs> on Facebook into into the description of this podcast. Wonka on. Wonka on. There we go. There we go. We got there. We got there. So anyway, Kreutzmann goes over. To the east, sorts out the funeral, coffin comes back, Harry is there with Kreutzmann's henchmen to open the coffin when they open it. Shock horror, who's there? Kreutzmann. Um, Harry realises he's been done. Next thing, he's whacked on the back of the head in that 60s way where you just get hit in the back of the head and straight away you're out. But of course, again, in 60s style, he he just woke up again at just the right time in terms of the plot and everything. It's amazing how that all always happens in those flicks. But yeah. anyway, just he not, just yeah. just just very quickly mm-hmm. as we kind of kind of schedule for a movie called Funeral in Berlin. I was expecting more funeral. Yeah, the funeral is essentially walking a coffin across a bridge. That's pretty much it. They're going from uh, West Berlin into East Berlin, and it's yeah. I mean, well, for, as far as funerals go, it's pretty yeah. Yeah, there was no yeah, there was no wake. There's no sandwiches. No, it's distinct lack of blues. No interminable line of. Oh, sorry for your trouble. Sorry for your trouble there. Sorry for your trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was none of that. And, and funny enough, actually, in kind of keeping with this version of Harry Palmer, the same way in the first in the first installment to distinguish itself from Bond, as we talked about before about it, Chris, there was a lot of paperwork and stuff like that. It's no paperwork here. Like it's it's straight down the line. Harry is ahead of the game the whole time, isn't he? In this, as opposed to the last time when he was kind of not really. He's ahead, really game, but he, he, he's ahead of the game, but he gets knocked unconscious by, a lad, by the lad standing behind him. So he's not... He's, like, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> he's, he's aware of the game. I wouldn't say he's ahead of it. He's, he's, aware, he's, ahead, he's ahead of the game in terms of, for, of uh, making sure that he has a, a copy, uh, a forged copy of the uh, the, the broom documents uh, yeah. that he could that he plant as well, which... That's more leads, leads us on to the rest of, the, the, rest of the, the, the plot. Exactly. I'm going to come on to that in about... I would say 30 seconds time. So basically we are now, okay. So Harry's knocked out. Uh, Mossad, of course, rock up. Samantha and the lads are there. Uh, they take the documents off Johnny Vulcan, who's knocked him out. People are, of course, we're watching going, Johnny Vulcan, he's mate. How could you, how could you Johnny Vulcan? What's going on? So that's fine. That, that all happens. Then uh, Ross, his boss back in London tells Palmer, that Paul Louis Broom was indeed a war criminal who murdered a resistance fighter called Johnny Vulcan. What a great. I mean, I just, I love the name Johnny Vulcan. It seems completely out of place in this movie. But anyway, whatever about that. Yeah, he sounds like a, he sounds like a French pop star from the from the sixties. He, sh- he, ap- he exactly. He's 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 in the right era, but he's in the wrong movie. Like, yeah, you know, it's 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 great. But anyway, so the British have blackmailed uh, Broom into becoming Johnny Vulcan and doing their doing their dirty work, which, of course, is a little bit similar to Harry, isn't it? Because he got spared a long prison sentence um, by agreeing to go work for intelligence and do all this kind of crappy stuff that he doesn't really want to do. So anyway, so now the next job is go kill Broom, please. And 
Harry's Harry's scruples don't don't stretch as far as killing lads he knew fifteen years ago. They don't, but they, his scruples don't stretch as far as killing killing a, a Nazi concentration camp guard, which I think we can both agree on. Uh, I, I, I don't want to appear too woke, but you know, concentration <laughs> camp guards, bad guys, bad lads. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know, so, so, you would think you could you're, you could stretch you could stretch at least one scruple. Um, yeah, to to killing him instead of just saying ah, well, choking him in under the chin and just going ah, bad Nazi, but off you <laughs> that, go, off you go, you scamp. Our man is sent over to kill him. He picks up Vulcan. Of course, he doesn't. It's again, it is like that. It's it's like he's like he's like he's driving a dog into the woods and he lets him off, basically, isn't it? And Vulcan, of it's course, exactly he, gives him, he gives him a cigarette and then lets him off. Yeah. So he rocks up back at Sam Steele's flat. Uh, to rob the documents, gets the documents, kills a Mossad guy. Then he meets, of course, with Hallam, who uh, who we've met previously, and he's flat trying to corner Harry. Uh, and when they look at the document, Hallam looks at the documents, he realizes they're forgeries. Realizes that yeah, Harry Hallam, swapped them. Uh, Hallam, uh, Hallam, Hallam and, and Broom are in cahoots. They are in cahoots. And the reason they're in cahoots is, isn't it, that Hallam is going to be fired, basically, and he, he has, he's a bit annoyed he's, at this. He's, he's very bad with money. And he mm. sees this is an opportunity to get more money. Although, really, he's not fixing the root problem because even if he gets more money, he's still likely to spend it on, uh, I know, miniature Buddhas, uh, Ming vases, and a selection of increasingly expensive kimonos. So, <laughs> even if things turned out differently, I'd say Hallam would still end up, uh, you know, um, uh, begging for cigarettes um, in about five years. So, solution to all this, Hallam, assuming that Harry is still a dope, uh, calls off to his flat saying, I've been sent by Ross to collect the documents. Of course, Harry's way ahead of the game and g- grabs Hallam in a kind of an arm twisty thing and your man cracks like a twig under pressure. Yes, I, I tell you everything, please, no more pain. Yes, uh, literally, literally, inside of like a second. Um, so anyway, he explains that the two lads were going to defect over to East Berlin and then they were going to make their way to Switzerland, get the two million quid, Yada yada yada. So Harry says, Right, I've got a plan. Let's go to the wall. Tonight's the night they're going across. So he takes Hallam with him. They go to the wall where they're where he is meant to meet Paul Louis Broom, Johnny Vulcan. Um he sends Hallam on ahead to try and uh, lull him into a false sense of security. Vulcan, again, also not a dope, stabs him. Um, so Harry finds him on the stairs. Uh, and then, yeah, and then basically suddenly you see Mossad are here as well. And then we have this yeah, so, kind of, yeah. Yeah, so, so Mossad think that, think that Harry is responsible for killing their uh, their their mate in the apartments. And so they're out for Vulcan's, Vulcan slash Broom's blood and also for Harry's blood. Uh, yeah, so go on. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, what, but this is one of my favorite, no, this is one of my kind of like, oh my God, bits in the movie. So you've basically got like British intelligence, a Mossad guy, uh, Nazi war camp stroke British intelligence guy, West Berlin or West German guards and East German guards all within about 20, 30 yards of each other. Uh, and a film crew. And a, and a film crew. Uh, and it's dead silent and all this is going on. Long story short, um, we're at the wall. So Hallam is gone. Vulcan is making for it. And I'm just going to, uh, to be honest, Steve, I'm, I'm already plotsied out. So, just tell me how it finishes. Well, picture if if you will. It's it's midnight. <laughs> Quicker. <laughs> Quicker. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, 
ha- uh, Broom has Harry at gunpoint. Harry says, "Look, the jig is up. Uh, Ross and these men are on on their way, um, they, and they're, they're, they've they've been tra- they've been told to keep an eye out for your trademark fur coat." Um, which, to be fair, you'd imagine spies would be better trained. You know, maybe to look for a man of his exact description rather than for somebody wearing a fur coat in a very cold city. Um, mm-hmm. it could be potentially, a, potentially a massacre. So, <laughs> so being being quite clever. Uh, Broom makes uh, Harry swap swap his trademark coat for uh, for his own trademark coat. Um, it's Mossad, of course, who turn up, not uh, not MI five or MI six or whatever. They go out. Uh, Mossad see um, Vulcan dressed as Harry. Sam Steele, her heart, uh, her warm heart turns to one might say steel, and shoots. Uh, tells the lads to shoot uh, Harry Broom or Harry Palmer, who's actually Broom. Bang, bang, he's dead. They go over. <gasps> They've been trixied. Harry walks mm-hmm. over and says, uh, you know, I can't... He says nothing, but he's, his eyes say, I can't believe you did me like that, Sam. I thought our love was forever. But more <laughs> concisely, he says... Uh, he, 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 say, he says, the documents are in his, 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 his breast pocket, which I guess is the equivalent of your money's on the nightstand, love. I, yes, in, in spy talk. In spy talk, yeah. Yeah, and that's effectively the movie. Um, another more succinct way of putting of putting this entire part, it's a story of one man's uh, basically application for an eight hundred pound car loan that goes awry. Um, <laughs> this is true. This is very true. He's he's not just you know trying to trying to put a very lame joke together. Go on. No, essentially, that the, I mean, the Harry has been looking for eight hundred pounds to buy a car. That's apparently is, is pertinent to the plot because I suppose you'd, you'd never see James Bond doing it because basically they're throwing cars at him mm-hmm. like he's like he's like he's a Premier League footballer. And even in this movie, yeah, you, you, yeah, you try. Yeah, look, you get marked for trying, yeah. but here, come here. And here's your even on that. Like he doesn't even get the best car in the movie. Johnny Vulcan has the best car, nineteen fifty nine Cadillac, which just seems to go on for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. But he even has a good car. So, you know, even poor Harry is just scrambling around for the loan. And even at the end, when Ross is basically saying, you did a good job despite uh, despite everything, you can have your car loan. Harry's like, no, my heart's broken for that girl that I slept with maybe a couple of times. And I love her. Um, but she broke my heart and shot and basically shot me. So, no, I don't I don't want the car. And that will teach you. I don't know what yes. we're supposed to take, take from that. Is it is like the is it the equivalent of uh, Clint Eastwood's throwing his badge I- into the river at the end of the first Dirty Harry movie? You know, it's kind of this very symbolic thing. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, he's coming back for the next movie. So what's the, the third movie? Is it going to be? Is he going to be? You're going to be seeing the first of the first shot is him just driving a very expensive car, going, you know, I've changed my mind. Or maybe he's going to be just cycling. He's just. I think... He's still. He's still trying to prove a point. He's cycling in and out to walk. I think you've been cycling it out to work. Yeah, yeah. He's taking he's taking the tram and bus. I, yeah. I'm 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 not. I'm just disgusted. He's got one of those little fold, thing was got, carried on. He's got one of those little fold up bikes that he brings on the tube. Squished <laughs> yeah. in there. Angry all the time. Angry, and people are looking at him. Going, Why is he scowling all the time? And he's going, you just wouldn't understand. It's, it's I'm disgusting. making a I'm making a point. I get a really serious point at work that no one, and I mean no one, is paying any attention to. But I think you've actually hit something there now with the dirty Harry thing. That it's it's absolutely is that is what it is. Because what struck me about the ending, and what I really like about the ending, and it's one of the reasons I really like the film, is that okay. Mossad got what they wanted, which was essentially Paul Louis Broom dead, right? And I presume they'll get the two million quid 
as well out of it. Um, Ross is happy because Vulcan is dead. And also they can spin it as a guy trying to jump the wall who didn't make it. So he's a martyr. So every Hallam is gone, you know, mole, kind of, you know, defector type. The only person who loses out here is Harry. And I mean, this is like he's 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 the anti-hero almost like, you know, what I, mean? I mean, nothing. Even when he does the job properly, it still doesn't work out for him. And I, I, it's like I thought that was really I thought that was really good. Well, it's a continuation of the theme. It's a, it's similar to the Icarus file. He didn't, you know, it's again, it's kind of a wouldn't they say it was it's a very triumphant ending in that film either. So they're kind of no. interesting to see what whether or not they maintain this as it goes through the decades, where let's say audiences would be less okay with a kind of a downbeat ending. Yeah, but I guess we'll see. We'll see over the coming episodes. That's uh, true. Another thing, just to mark out, mark out is that uh, in terms of body count, from uh, if you go. If you look mm. at Harry Palmer as being an anti-James Bond, I mean, he kills nobody in this movie. I think he kills no. one person in the Icarus file. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think you're right. And he refuses to kill someone in this film. Yeah. So, Although he essentially, he, he, he does essentially kill, uh, he, he sends Broom off to his death by making him swap coats, or put planting the seed of the alias, or swapping yeah. coats in his head. Yes, I mean, he's he's kind of adjacent to death a few times, but he's not doing it like you know, he's no. going, you walk over there wearing my jacket. There might be bullets, but you walk over there. It's nothing to do with me. I've got plausible deniability here. Another key, another key um, item in a spy's tool belt, of course, plausible deniability. Absolutely. So, like, it's a really, it's a really good movie. The one thing we actually didn't touch on, which we probably should just talk about for a minute, is Berlin itself. I mean, at this remove now, uh, 1966, they filmed... 95% of the film in Berlin. You could guess when you, for anyone who hasn't seen it, if you go watch the film, you'll be able to guess the scenes that they probably couldn't film in Berlin. But 95% of it was filmed there. Um, you know, it's Kane walking across the true checkpoint, Charlie. They filmed in East Berlin as well. It's, it adds hugely to the film, like. Yeah, uh, if I if I was a kind of a film critic, wiker, I'd say you could say that Berlin is 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 perhaps the lead character in this movie. It has its own it has its own accent almost, doesn't it? In this film, no, it's, it's it's. I mean, the film in a, in a lot of ways is kind of a historical document in terms of it shows a, you know a, mm. a, a snap a, a, it's a snapshot of a place in a unique place uh, at a unique time in history. Yeah, I must have gone to the wall during the time that I was there about twenty five times. It's an awful thing, but somehow it's fascinating. You find yourself walking around in a sort of atmosphere of ghosts. It's a sort of white-knuckled city. You're always sitting there with your hands clenched, even when you're ordering breakfast. But you get the feeling of violence at any time. So, yeah, from that perspective, it's, it's really, like I said, I really enjoyed the movie, more so than, I guess, the other movies that we've seen so far. Uh, so... It'd be interesting to see whether or not this is a benchmark that, I mean, I'm saying this and I know it's not true, that whether or not this is a, ben, a benchmark that, that Kane can maintain throughout the other 517 movie credits that he has. Well, like, as, as we'll probably find out in the very next movie, which we'll talk about in a second. But I mean, this is, this was, yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I think, and like, as you know, I'm a big Zulu fan, but I think, geez, this is, I mean, just as a piece of work. This is really, really good. Like, I, I, I would give it in our in our marks of K and O to ten. I would probably, I, mean, I don't want to go overboard, but I'd probably give this a very solid seven, heading for an eight. Actually, yeah, I really enjoyed seven, it. Yeah, no, really enjoyable film. If I saw it on again, I'd sit down and I'd watch it. Yeah, definitely, definitely recommend it. Yeah, 
I mean, one of the things, I mean, you know, we'll have loads of opportunities to be glib about Michael Caine films as we go along. But, I mean, you know, this is just a really, really good film. And it probably benefits a little bit as well. For example, like for things like, you know, Otto Heller was a cinematographer. In Ipcris file, there's some fantastic things going on with the cinematography, the way it looks. This is a lot more straight down. I think this film is just a lot more straight down the line. Even even though it is platzy, it is very easy to follow it, I think, anyway. And it's yeah, just, it's a, it just it's a lot more easy to follow. There's less there's less um airy fairy pig floydy visuals yeah. for no brainwashing. Not, That's good. No brainwashing which complete knows are horseshit. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Lack of brainwashing, lack of a feeling of being at a Pink Floyd gig always is an advantage when watching the film, I think. And in life. In general, indeed it is. Um so yeah, so like I mean that else you want to touch on in this in this thing? Are we happy with Funeral Berlin right there? I think I think we've enough there to 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 leave the lovely people at home mm. um, hungry for another for hungry for another episode hungry for another episode. Although when you see the film that we're going to be watching for the next episode, in fact, this is one of those ones where maybe you don't want to watch the film. Just come and listen to us talk about it. I think that might I be think, a better thing. Well, then, yeah, the next movie is is uh, 1967's Hurry mm. Sundown. Yeah, um, I don't think he can quite fit in another film into 1966. I mean, you know, the man's got to eat and sleep at some stage. Yeah, I think that yeah, another film would have been the Waffer Thin Mint that would have uh, ended up exploding <laughs> uh, Michael Caine all over the place. So. Although, to be fair, Hurry Sundown, you know, following on from the marvel of, of a, well, the, well, the excellence of Funeral Berlin, I mean, it does kind of explode all over the place, doesn't it? Hurry Sundown a little bit, a little bit. Well, not to kind of lead the the listeners in any particular direction. I would just mm, encourage you before you make point. your mind up about it, if you if whether or not you want to watch Hurry Sundown, I would very much encourage you to YouTube the the trailer and make your own mind up. Uh, it is uh, it's it's a hell of a film and it's an interesting follow up. I think it really speaks to somebody who was just ping ponging his way through Hollywood, um, <laughs> like uh, like a, like a hormonal. Uh, tennis ball he said mixing his metaphors so you know it really i don't think i think even kane in in his drunkest moments could ever try and convince you that he had a a strategy anything resembling a strategy other than uh pay for the pay for the house or houses uh and keep the show on the road You'd love to go back and, and be like, what, what, what was your thinking here to do this film next? It's, I mean, we won't go into it too much, but I mean, suffice to say, he affects a, a southern accent. Does he? He sure does. He sure does. He does. He sure he does. does. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll go into it. Don't, don't kind of spoil it because we'll be talking about it now. Yeah. At, 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 at length in the next at episode. At extreme length. At extreme yeah. length. It is worth, no, it is worth having a look because this is what's good. This is what this podcast is going to be like. We're going to be going from like something like Funeral in Berlin into something straight after to just kind of going, why would you pick something like that to do next after doing that? This is the whole, and this is why we're doing it. This is why we're doing the Kane films because he has this amazing ability um, to do great films and then drop down and come back up again with something. So go watch Hurry Sundown, come back to us, uh, come back to the next he, episode. Kane is one of the reasons why we're doing this. Kane is the Andy Dufresne uh, of movie <laughs> actors. He will, without doubt, trawl through four football fields of the most dreadful shit and come out at the end <laughs> <laughs> triumphant yes triumphant 
triumphant. Um, Hands aloft towards the light that's been perched behind the camera. Whether it's whether it's Helen or, or Helen and her sisters or Cider House Rules. Yes. Um, just washing the feces away from his um, decaying body. Mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely, lovely image. It was going so well. I am, well, I'm a, I am a published author, you know. You, you, you are, and I, and at this point, can we uh, encourage listeners to uh, buy up some of those uh, still, uh, still remaining copies? We don't want to, we don't want to have too many boxes to go and pulp at the end of this year. No, Greta Thunberg would be very cross. She would be very cross, and we don't want that to happen. Stephen, no, I'm not, get, I'm not getting another turd in the mail. Thank you very much, <laughs> Stephen. Thank you very much. Did you enjoy it? I did very much so. Thank, thank you, Michael. You were very gentle. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, next up, hurry sundown, hurry back. We'll see you next time around. What are you waiting for? Come on. Come on. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. And maybe leave a comment. Only nice ones, though. Mean comments will make Alfie cry, and no one wants to see that. The Michael Kane podcast is written, researched, and presented by Stephen Black and Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. Music is composed by Stephen Black. If you'd like to get in touch, you'll find us on Twitter at, at Mallow News and at Marco Kane 2 And if you enjoyed this episode, you'll find all the rest wherever you get your podcasts. The Marco Kane is a Mallow News Two Cubes production. See you next time.